Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Morning, church. My name is Michael, and I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm excited to uh, preach today, excited to be here with you today to uh, gather and worship God together. Um, so you're, you're here at week five of a six-week mini-series that we're going through called Future Proof, Six Ways to Future Proof Your Faith. Each week during this short series, we're doing a different emphasis that will be kind of an ongoing feature in the life of our church. And today, the topic is well-ordered households. Well-ordered households. That means households that reflect God's good design for the family. God's good design is for various members of a household to relate to one another and to work together in a particular way. There's an order to it. And so the big idea of our message today is that God's people flourish when they move with the grain of God's design and not against it. God's people flourish when they move with the grain of God's design and not against it. In other words, the optimal condition to promote the physical and emotional and the spiritual health of all humanity is here in well-ordered households. So that's my thesis for today. I believe it with all my heart down to my bones, and that's why this is an emphasis um, in our church going forward. So let, let me set this up a little bit. The wisdom of Scripture about the, the order of the household has, is being largely abandoned in our society today. And so as a result, the American family itself is falling apart. It's becoming more and more disordered rather than more and more ordered. We see things like birth rates on the whole are decreasing. In fact, we're, we've fallen below replacement rate in the United States. So, you know, 50 years from now, we will have uh, a, a diminished number of people because we're not replacing ourselves. Marriage rates themselves are decreasing because people see less and less value in marriage itself as an institution. In fact, marriage itself has been redefined, or at least attempted redefinition by the Supreme Court when in 2015 they decided to play God and invent a new category of marriage called gay marriage, which is a fiction. It doesn't actually exist because that's not the way God designed the world. Now, that, that was seven, seven and a half years ago. That happened in 2015 in the summer. Um, but in the seven and a half years since then, the fallout is pretty obvious. If we're paying attention, we're seeing that a, a style of bold and aggressive androgyny has taken its place. It's the spirit of the age now. Now, God designed the household with a self-evident logic to it, right? There's a self-evident order or logic to the household. You have a man and a woman. They get married. The two shall become one flesh. They become a father and a mother. They have children, and they pass on a legacy, and their commitment to one another is the stabilizing environment that the children are brought up in. Now, uh, what we see with the LGBTQ movement is that there's no sense of order to it. There's no rules, really. There's no, there's no sense of this is the way things ought to be. Everything gets to be defined by the individual desires of the people a part of it. So, so there's no logic. There's no purpose. It is impossible for procreation to take place. Um, it's just 
uh, erotic idolatry. And so the core message of the LGBTQ movement uh, would go something like this. My erotic desires must be affirmed and celebrated by everyone, everywhere, no matter what. That's not an order. That's not even a household. That is, that is a, a, a sexual contract uh, between people. So what we need to do is recognize that our vision of Scripture that we, we believe in and we want to uphold as a church, the vision of Scripture of well-ordered households, it doesn't enjoy broad cultural support the way it might have in a previous generation. The household itself is in disarray, and the culture itself, we can't look out across the landscape and look at politicians and cultural leaders and thought leaders and, and other people that are the pacemakers of our culture and say these people are helping to promote and uphold what the Christian uh, faith would say is a, is a good ordering of the household and good for society. We don't see that happening in the culture now. And so we also need to recognize that there is a sense of inertia there is a, um, like a, a sense of development and movement to where it's constantly changing. It's a moving target. And so the inertia on this issue is moving in the wrong direction. It's not moving. There's not the, a correction where people are saying, hey, we need, to, we need to reclaim something that's lost. In fact, the, the inertia is moving in the opposite direction, away from a, a, a good and orderly vision of the household. And so that's why, as a church, we can't control what the world does. But we can control what happens here in our own church body. So for this reason, Christ the King Church will champion biblically, biblically faithful households. We want to promote it and to encourage it in our church. And so it's a point of emphasis. We're talking about being a future-proof church, which means a church that will, that will be faithful and strong through the generations. Because I want this to be a church that you can send your great-grandchildren to. And what your great-grandchildren will find will be something that is faithful in continuity with the way our church is today. That it won't drift with the culture. It won't move away from faithfulness. It'll be steadfast and, and unshakable and will we'll stay true to Scripture. But that doesn't just happen automatically. We have to put effort into it. We have to see where are the headwinds and where, where is the inertia? Where are we being tugged in one way or another that, that could be away from fidelity to Scripture and fortify those areas to make sure we don't drift along with it? So a church is only as strong as the households that comprise it. We've talked about being a church that's like an oak tree that can stand in, in a field and there's wind that's blowing it around, but it's immovable. It stands strong. So an oak tree church will be comprised of oak tree households. So what that means practically is that as a church, we want to equip you and to resource you and to help you and to encourage you to build oak tree type households in our own church body. We want to encourage healthy and strong marriages. We want to encourage uh, and build up children that are well protected and well discipled and catechized in the Christian faith so that they can leave a legacy for Christ just as you passed on a legacy to them. And we wanna do it because that's God's design. This is the way God made the world to operate. It's true, it is good, it is beautiful, and it's future proof. So that's where we're headed. Let's dig in. I want us to look at scripture. Titus chapter two is where we'll begin. 
Normally, we just go straight through books of the Bible. Um, well, in this series, we do jump around a little bit more. But we're in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you have a Bible, turn there. And I believe my, my screen should be on. Do we have it? I pushed my button earlier. First time this time. Okay, let's listen uh, to the Word of God. Titus chapter 2. This is the Apostle Paul, and he said, But as for you... Teach, he's giving Titus this instruction, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now just hold that phrase in your mind because we'll be, repeat, we'll be returning to it. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Next verse, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to, what, to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Train the young women to do what? Well, it says here to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that, here's a phrase, the word of God may not be reviled. So we'll get to this in a little, bit, uh, a little bit later, but Paul is connecting the honor of the word of God to a particular pattern of behavior within the household. You see that? So we have a legacy component you see developing here. You have older men, you behave a certain way. Older women, here's a way to behave. Now, older women, pass on these values, these principles to the younger women, and younger women, here's how you can apply them. And the, the effect of this is that the word of God will be upheld in some way, will not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So there's, you see, older men, older women, younger men, younger women. Show yourself, so here's Paul speaking um, to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that, here's another phrase I want you to notice, so that in everything, in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is God's word. Now, let me make a few observations about this text. And I'm not going to uh, develop this or spend a lot of time explaining it, but let me just share the observations with you. Seven of them. Seven observations about the text. It should be pretty straightforward uh, from a reading of the text. Number one, Paul urges Timothy to teach what accords with what he calls sound doctrine. So Timothy, I want you to teach something, and what I want you to teach, we're going to call it sound doctrine. Number two, Paul assumes that household life is the norm for most Christians. So Paul's making an assumption here that most Christians will express and live out their Christian faith within this context of a household. Number three, sound doctrine is about 
the, the way that we live in the household. So verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verses 2 through 10, give specific examples of different people of the household and how they were to live. Number four, men and women obey God by fulfilling their duties to their households. Number five, household duties differentiate according to one's age, their sex, and their work. Number six, the household itself should promote and reinforce these principles. So it should be a, a concept that is self-replicating within the household because it's being passed down older women to younger women, older men to younger men, uh, presumably from, from that pattern Paul spoke to the women. It's self-replicating so that there's a legacy aspect. This is being passed down. Number seven, well-ordered households bear witness to the truth of Scripture, the wisdom of God, and the beauty of the gospel. Now that last point comes from three phrases that I drew your attention to as I read. Verse 5, Paul says, you do this so that the word of God may not be reviled. There's upholding the truth of Scripture. Verse 8, Paul says, so that an opponent may be put to shame and that no, nobody may have anything evil to say about us. So it shows the wisdom of God that nobody can assail the wisdom of God. And then verse 9, Paul says, living life in this way adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. So that shows the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the way God has ordered the world in this way. So just to sum up where we are so far, if a husband isn't taking responsibility for his wife and his children and leading his home, Paul would say that's a, that's a doctrinal problem, not just a personal problem. There's something faulty in his doctrine if he's not fulfilling that obligation. And similarly, if a wife is not prioritizing her home by serving and building up her husband and her children, there's a doctrinal issue at work there. So sound doctrine is, is a practical matter. You know, we, we hear the word doctrine and often what comes to mind is, well, systematic theology and hermeneutics and uh, biblical theology and things like that. Well, sure, all of that in, includes doctrine, but doctrine is also how we live. Doctrine is practical. Sound doctrine is household discipleship, according to what Paul is describing here. So God cares about how men and women and children relate to one another within a framework of the household, how they serve each other, how they work together. Why? Because a household is a living testimony to the truth and goodness and the beauty of God himself and the, and the, the gospel itself. The, the household is a living witness saying, this is good. God ordered the world in this way. God reveals himself in this way through the household. And so the ordering of the household, it corresponds with how God created the world. So when we live the way Paul is describing here, we're moving with the grain we're not going against the flow. We're going with the flow of how God has designed the world. Let me show you another scripture. And there's literally uh, dozens we could go to, but I'm, I'm showing you the ones that, that clearly and most straightforwardly demonstrate what we're talking about. So let me show you another one. Turn over to Colossians 3, and I'll read uh, four verses here. And in Colossians 3, uh, pay attention particularly to a, a, any, a sense of structure or order. Colossians 3.18, wives, 
Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He says it's fitting in the Lord. It's like this, 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 this is something that is, is congruent with the way God's designed the world. It's fitting. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. If you're familiar with Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, there's other places that flesh this out more, but this one is, is brief. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. In this text, we have a framework, a basic outline and order of the household. So let me just review what we just read in Colossians 3. Husbands and fathers, they are responsible for the overall well-being of their household. Um, And that would include leading, protecting, providing for the members of the household. Wives and mothers, they are responsible for the help and support of their husband. And primarily the way they would do this is by um, the day-to-day management of the children, um, taking care of the kids and prioritizing the, the management of the children. Number three, children are responsible for their obedience to their parents. And conversely, parents are responsible to enforce the obedience of their children, to make sure that the kids know that they're supposed to obey their parents. Kids aren't born with that knowledge innately. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Number four, servants are responsible for being submissive to their employers and working as unto the Lord. And I don't want to derail us too much here. I'll just make a quick side note. In the ancient world, the household was not merely mom, dad, and kids in a minivan. In the ancient world, the household would include a network of relationships that could include multiple households. Um, multiple layers of people that are connected to one another, working together. So if you know the book of Genesis, Abraham had a household of 318 fighting men who could go to war, and that was before he had any biological children. So the idea of a household in the ancient world was very broad and expansive. And so the command to servants here would be something like a a butler or something like that, a person that would live and be connected to you and more than just showing up to you know, do housekeeping, but showing up and helping you manage the household. So that, that those people were included. And this order that Paul's laying out here is broad enough to encompass even that layer of relationship within the household. So obviously, there's going to be overlapping responsibilities, right? Individual gifts and strengths are mixed in. You have different personality types. You have different ways that, that people... Uh, that are gifted and they operate differently. And so that Paul doesn't prescribe down to the granular level, every little duty. There's not a a set of to-do lists that are attached to this text. He gives principles. He gives a framework and he says, operate within this general framework, knowing that relationally there's going to be a negotiation. There's going to be a way that men and women, and uh, they, they figure out who does what, how do they operate, but the overall framework, Paul is saying, you would need to honor the framing of this. And the framing is, husbands, you're responsible. Just like whenever Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, whenever God came to the garden, he wasn't saying, hey, Adam, hey, Eve, where are you guys? Come out. No, he's calling to Adam. Adam, where are you? They both sinned, but God was calling for the man because he was holding the man responsible because the man was the one that God was holding to account. He was responsible for his household in the garden. That's the way God designed it from the beginning. 
And Paul is just applying those ideas here in this text. So when a Christian household is ordered this way, then it is operating the way God designed it to operate. It's not saying it's perfect. It's not saying it's, there's not going to be problems or difficulties, but that's, that's the general flow of, of household life. It, it operates within these parameters. And God blesses that. That, that, that God blesses that. That's not a, you know, I don't think we should be afraid to say that to live in the way that God designed us to live, that there's a blessing that is part of it because the obedience and moving with the grain of creation is a blessing. And God blesses and makes fruitful the way that, the way that we live if, it, if it's in obedience to him. So what we could conclude then is that households that are, operate this way are stronger, they're more stable, they're more enduring. They're built to last. Going on theme here, they're more future-proof. And in a fallen world, there's going to be sin, right? There's going to be problems. There's going to be all kinds of ways that the things could get out of hand. But what we're looking at here is a blueprint. Here's a sketch of how to order our households as God designed it. And of course, no household is perfect. And I don't want to minimize or underestimate the destructive power of sin. So it's not hard to think of examples, and I'm sure you've already, some of you may already have half a dozen examples in your mind of, yeah, but what about this? Uh, what, well, what about that, Michael? You haven't thought about that, did you? I'm like, yes, I have thought about that. I can think of all kinds of ways that this can go way out of hand to where the structure itself could, uh, could be abused and manipulated for sinful purposes. You can have bad marriages. We've all, we know that that's a thing. You can have manipulative wives. You can have domineering, controlling, abusive husbands. That's a thing. These things can happen. People can exploit one another. And so the design of the household is not a promise that it will be a sin-free or problem-free environment. But it does mean is that this is, this is the way to, to protect and to mitigate against the various manifestations of sin. Sin will manifest itself, but there's a, there's a faith aspect of trusting God that this is how God has designed it. And we, we're blessed and it is better to move with the grain of how God designed it, even though we're going to be able to identify problems in a fallen world. So I'm not denying that there's problems. The problem is that human sin is at the root. Human sin is the problem. What what happens a lot of times is that people don't blame the sinfulness of human beings. They blame the design. They say, this must be a design flaw. That's why my marriage is in such bad shape. God tells me to act this way, and I don't want to act that way. And and there's this problem in my marriage because, uh, you know, we're not getting along and things are going rough. So it's like, we need to abandon the blueprint. We got to figure out some other way to operate. But we blame the design, which is an, a, a tacit blaming of the designer. When human sin, our own hard-heartedness, our own rebellion is, is, is really to blame. And added to that, the fact that in, in a household, there's more things beyond your control. So if you're, you know, if you're uh, trying to discipline yourself in some way, if you're trying to lose weight and eat healthy or exercise or something like that, if you do it or if you don't do it, that's all on you. But in a household, there's other people, other factors that play into it. And that's a complicating factor. So I'm not denying that. But the design itself is, 
it, it requires the participation of, of all the household members. And ultimately, who would be responsible for ensuring that everything is operating that way? It'd be the father, right? Because the father is the one that is the head of the household. He would be the one that God will look to to say, husband, father, it is your job to ensure that your household operates in an orderly way. But in the modern world, like I said, the tendency is to blame the design. You say, well, the design must be off. That's the problem. The design must be off. And so what we try to do is remove from the household order things that we find problematic, that we think are difficult. And so what we've been doing over the last century or so in particular is playing a game of Jenga with the household to where there's, there are essential features of a well-ordered household. And we're like, well, I don't really like that part. So I want to just pull that piece out, but you're pulling a piece out of the bottom because you're pulling something out of the design. So for example, you'll have, you know, the feminists. Feminists will say things like, well, let's, let, let's pull the husband's headship out. We don't like the husband's headship. That, there's a lot of problems there. Uh, patriarchy, that's the problem. So let's get rid of that. We're going we're gonna to smash the patriarchy. Well, there's, you're pulling out an essential piece, a, a design feature of the household itself. You know, a feminist might say, well, while we're at it, let's, let's get rid of the wife's primary obligation to, to manage her home, um, to be attentive to, to the raising of the children. Let's get rid of that too, and we'll pull that piece out. Well, then the abortion activists come along, and they're like, well, hold my beer. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's, kids are an obstacle. Kids are a big problem. They can be a headache and hard to work with. So let's, let's, uh, let's, let's just make marriage about sexual fulfillment rather than, you know, getting kids into the mix. So we'll remove children as a potential, uh, as a potential outcome of a marriage. Well, then the Supreme Court comes along and says, well, hold my beer. Who's to say it's just, who's to say it's a man and a woman? The Supreme Court ruled in Obergefell, well, how about uh, two men? Why not, why not have two men get married? Why about, how about two women get married? Who's, who are we to decide? Well, then the LGBTQ activists come along and they say, well, hold my beer. What's a woman? What's a man? How can you even define these categories? They're meaningless and irrelevant. Well, they're just social contracts, constructs. Now, you might, think, you might think I'm overplaying my hand, but I promise you, these ideas are connected. They're connected. And so what we've been doing is this game of Jenga to where piece by piece we've pulled out and can anybody deny that the modern household is in a state of disarray? I think at the very least, everybody in this room should go that far and acknowledge, yeah, the family, the, the, the household itself is in disarray, it's disordered. Why? Well, it's because we've been pulling out all these pieces and acting as though we can still enjoy the benefits and the blessings and it'll still be fine whenever we've removed these essential ingredients. So go back, going back to the wisdom of Scripture, Titus 2 and Colossians 3, those texts are load-bearing. They can bear weight. They can, they can take on a heavy load because they can account for lots of different ways that the household can... can uh, can have trouble, can, can be, uh, be problematic, but the, main, the basic structure is intact. And, and it flexes. You know, the, the, the basic structure can flex. Kind of like there, uh, I looked up this week, there's a skyscraper in Dubai. It's like the tallest building in the world. Um, Khalifa, what was it? Burj Khalifa, I think is the name of this building. 
uh, tallest building in the world, but at the top level, even though this, this building is, I mean, you'd think a building that tall, it's got to be extremely strong. It's got to have the most rock solid foundation. At the top level, it can sway in the wind up to six feet. <laughs> Imagine having an office on the top floor and you're like, whoa, it's like you're, you can sway, but the household is like that. It's this firm, steady foundation, but it can sway at the top level. At the top level, you might think of a lot of ways. It's like, well, what about this? Or what about that problem? What about divorce? What about abuse? What about? It's like, well, that, you don't need to eliminate the structure to account for and to deal with the sway of human life, the sway of sin. This skeletal structure of Titus 2 and Colossians 3, and there are other scriptures. If you would like a list, I would be happy to send them to you. Uh, but it is, it, is, it is right there on the surface of Scripture. You don't even need to know Hebrew and Greek. It is right there in, in plain English. And a society is held together by the households that comprise it. And so as the household in America is falling apart, that, that doesn't bode well for our society. Now, cultural trends, things happening in society, like I said, we can't control that. What about us here? My, my desire is for Christ the King Church to be the kind of church that no matter what happens in society, that we have got this firm foundation. We have got an or, a, a culture of orderly households that can sustain and withstand the cultural headwinds, whichever way they tend to be blowing. So these are big ideas. I want to... I wanna, um, spend a few minutes drilling down into some more practical things. Now, as you can imagine, there are a thousand things I can say. Can you at least know that if, you, if we get to the end of the sermon, you're like, well, he didn't say that thing. Well, uh, unless we want to be here all afternoon, there's only a few things that I can say. So there's a thousand things I could say, and I, but it, it wouldn't be helpful to say it all here. And that's why I'm presenting it in this series as an ongoing emphasis. So this is not a, well, this sermon's the only shot that we have to discuss all the complexities and all the challenges and intricacies of, of household life. No, this is a, an introduction, a prolegomena. A, a, here is just a, 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 a headline. And then we have different venues where we can flesh it out. So the thing I want to make sure we all hear is that household discipleship, that's in our DNA as a church. We're going to always be looking for ways to do it better. Now, I have a few application points about the DNA of a well-ordered household, but all of, those, all of these application points that I want to give you here in a second, they're aimed at promoting this as a culture, as, as a DNA, as a, as a value as, of, as a church. And the particulars can be fleshed out in various venues. It can be interpersonal conversations. It can be um, men's and women's nights, men's and women's retreat, mom collective, pre-engagement counseling, premarital counseling, pastoral care, personal discipleship. Uh, current reality podcast, if you listen to that. Um, these things can, will be fleshed out in a few other venues, but I want to I set the table for this as a, as a DNA thing where we can uh, open up a conversation knowing that this is something that we all want to strive after together. So I've got one, two, three, four, five application points, and hopefully I won't go too long giving you these five application points. Number one, 
Men and women are sanctified differently. Men and women are sanctified differently. And I'm not saying in every possible way, but I'm saying there are some ways that men will be sanctified that are different than the way a woman would be sanctified and vice versa. Androgyny is the spirit of the age. So the spirit of the age is to eliminate any and all sexual distinctions between men and women. That's, That's what you're going to get on TV, media, news, politics, just about everywhere. That's the spirit of the age. Um, And it's pretty popular in the church these days too, to treat men and women as though they are interchangeable in every way except for the biologically incontestable ones. But that's not true. Our bodies shape who we are and it informs who we are. And and even as such, we, we live out the Christian life to some extent unique from one another. There's, there are different vocations and duties, and that's what we've seen in the text so far. So we're going to be, we're created differently, and so we're going to be tempted in different ways. And that means men and women will sin in different ways. But also, men and women will obey God in different ways. Men and women have different discipleship needs, and we need to be challenged to fulfill those. That's that, that, that much should be pretty obvious from Titus 2 and Colossians 3. Here's the second point. Christian obedience as men and women largely corresponds to the work God calls us to do to build up our households. I'll say that again. Christian obedience as men and women largely corresponds to the work God calls us to do in building up our households. So we saw in these texts that for Christian men, godliness is fatherly. And for Christian women, godliness is motherly. Now, I want to, I'll, I'll develop this here. Quick caveat. If you're not married yet, if you're, even if you plan to never get married, or if you've been married and you're divorced, that does not overturn the principle that I'm speaking of here. Because I'm not speaking of purely biological fatherhood and motherhood. I'm talking about the shape of Christian virtue, Christian holiness, obedience. So sanctified Christianity grows towards the virtues of fatherhood and motherhood. So godly single men can obey God by preparing themselves to take on the responsibilities that would correspond to being a Christian father. Same to single women, by taking on responsibilities and and preparing themselves for motherhood. And we know this because God's command in Scripture, it corresponds to our natures as men and women, which is reflected in our duties to our household. So the nature of our sexuality, it's pointed at the end for which it was designed. So the things about you that make you a man or the things about you that make you a woman, in medical school, they would call this the reproductive system, right? Because those are the things, those are, that's how men and women reproduce. And so the, our sexuality as men and women, it's pointed at something. It is pointed at reproduction. That's not an accident. And Christian virtue, Christian sanctification is oriented towards those, those ultimate ends. Even if a man or woman never biologically fathers or mothers a child, there's still a, a, a way of being that is fatherly or a way of being that's motherly 
in a mature Christian man or mature Christian woman will be more fatherly or motherly in their disposition. I want to, I'm, I'm writing a book about this stuff. Um, it's due out this spring, publishing it. Um, chapter five is called Gendered Virtue. And I want to read to you a section. Um, it's, a, it's a quote that I think sums up well what I'm trying to say. Um, so let me read to you this quote, and I've got it on the screen here. Are we up there? Okay. Virtue aligns with design. As Jay Buchevsky put it, sanity begins with the fact that men are potentially fathers and women potentially mothers. This is not just a fact about what kind of thing they might or might not do someday, but about what kind of being they are inwardly aimed at becoming. He's right about that. Nature points to something beyond itself. Sexuality has a goal, a purpose, or a telos, which ultimately is to reproduce. This is why sexual distinctions are more important than other human distinctions. Sexual distinctions were made to accomplish a goal. God does not assign different vocations to tall people or short people, or to people with blue eyes or brown eyes. Those are merely manifestations of God's creativity. But God does assign vocations according to our sect. We've already read that in Titus 2 and Colossians 3. Masculinity was created for fatherhood, and femininity was created for motherhood. The vocations of father and mother do not represent the full range of virtue for men and women, but they do supply the basic contours of each. Since they represent the telos of sexuality at its fullest expression. The commands that we read in scripture earlier, Titus and Colossians, they're not arbitrary. They reflect a design. Something that God intended. Something that God put there. Because he loves us and he wants uh, the, the multiplication of his image upon the earth. You know, God created Adam and Eve. That's the only time God ever created, by his own hand, image bearers. Every other image bearer since then has come about through human sexuality. God creates eternal image bearers through the agency of men and women who become one flesh and God knits together a new life. And that life that is knit together in a mother's womb is an eternal soul created in God's image. And it, that soul came about because a man and a woman decided to join together. And the optimal environment for that eternal soul to be nurtured and raised is within this covenant boundary of a household. And that covenant boundary is not merely, well, they're married and they always stay together, but that covenant boundary is that there's something about the way they interact that tells a story. It reflects something beautiful and divine about the way God's made the world. The scriptures are telling us this is how God made the world. And this is how any one of us in this room came into being. It is because God made the world this way. And this is how we can move with the grain of God's order for the world, for his glory and our good.
I'll put this in crayon. This applies to everybody, young and old, single married, married with kids, not married with kids, every life stage. Men, do you want to be a godly man? There's one man here that does. <laughs> you want to be a godly man, but you wonder, what does that mean? Do I need to hit the gym? Do I need to, do I need to take on some cultural notion of masculinity? Do I need to act a certain bravado way? If you want the crayon version of this, act like a good father. Be the kind of man that would make an excellent father, whether or not you've got kids, and you'll be a godly man. Women, do you want to be a godly woman? As a woman. Yes. Then whether or not you have children now, act like the kind of woman that would make an excellent mother. And when you, those, those images in mind, let them summon within you a set of virtues that the Holy Spirit can apply it in your particular situation. But I think you'll, you'll get the contours of what we're talking about because it's, it's not as though there's a list of characteristics that God says, okay, men, you got to have a big beard. Uh, you got to be able to bench press this much. You got to run fast. You got to kill some people with a knife, you, whatever. The, the Bible doesn't give us those specifics, but it does tell us fathers, mothers, this is the end for which your sexuality was created. And so virtue, sanctification, moves along these lines as we pro progress towards that end. Number three, women especially can help each other navigate the challenges of modern household life. I want to read, uh, this is from Titus 2 again. Um, I want to go back and, and read this text again. Older women... Likewise are to be reverent behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach. So they refers to the older women. These older women are to teach. What do they teach? Teach what is good. And so train the young women. So the older women, these older women here, they're to teach and to train the young women. To do what? Well, love their husbands and children be self-controlled, pure, working at home, like prioritizing their home, being kind, submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. So older women can, can help train the younger women to uphold the, the scripture, the truth of scripture, by, by encouraging and training younger women to, to obey these commands. So whenever there's older women in a church, and, and we have some here, and by older women, I'm not thinking of an age. <laughs> I'm not thinking if you are past X age, then you are, congratulations, here's a certificate, you're now an older woman. I'm not saying that. Older women is women who are experienced as mothers. You've, you've, you've done this. You've, you've, you've dealt with some trials. You've experienced some life. You've got something to offer. And there's a lot of you in this room. Don't think you've got to be 70 plus years old. And that 70-year-old old ladies, you're young. Let me, you young ladies, it's just an arbitrary number. It came off the top of my head. Um, you don't have to reach a certain age. It's, it's, uh, there is a wisdom that you've acquired over time by walking with God faithfully and by building up your household. So you 
have an opportunity to equip these younger women to build up their households or prepare single young women for what that might look like in their future. So um, the verse, uh, so Paul says the training curriculum would include love and submit to your husbands, um, taking care of children, prioritizing your home. Now that there's a note in the ESV study Bible. I think I like the way he said it. Um, it does not prohibit having a job, but it, it does indicate a, a first priority. It indicates a first priority of, of your husband and your, your children are, are the most important priorities uh, for your household. So that would include a submissive relationship to her husband and primary caregiver for her children. So Paul is, is saying to these older ladies, hey, ladies, like, let me give you a particular assignment. Let me tell you how you can help, how you can build up the church. Like, pay attention to these younger women and build into them. Help them. To put it another way, that's, that's a great starting point for any women's ministry in a church, is, is to see, like, where do the younger women need to be built up? So, I mean, like, women of CTK, I hear this or receive this as a loving exhortation. Um, pursue one another to disciple each other in household life. And as a suggestion, you can use these scriptures in Titus chapter 2 as a point of accountability. You say, hey, are we doing this? Are we, are, are, we, are we honoring scripture and building up our households the way Titus 2, 3 through 5 says? You can ask each other questions about it. Now, I've already acknowledged the cultural inertia that's going on in our society, right? Which it tugs in the opposite direction. It tugs against household life, away from these things. And because this has been happening for a long time, this sort of household life is becoming increasingly unfamiliar or strange to people. So think of this. There's a shrinking number of people in our society today that grew up in intact households. I'm one of them that did not grow up in an intact household. My parents were divorced when I was seven. And that's, that's pretty common nowadays. But think of how few it is where you have uh, young men and women that grew up with Christian mom and dad that loved Jesus, part of the church, and raised them in the Christian faith, stayed together, marriage in a loving relationship, that, that's becoming more and more rare, right? So at the very least, you have a, a, a population, a generation of people where it's rare to find somebody who saw that growing up. They saw that in their house. They saw, here's mom, here's dad. I, I see how they relate to one another. I see how this, they, that was modeled in my church, and I saw how it, it fleshed itself out in, in particular scenarios. And so it's, it's becoming a lost art in some ways. Not entirely, but it is, it is becoming something that is harder to find. It's not as common. And a lot of kids nowadays <clears throat> are, you know, it's, it's becoming even further removed where you have um, different scenarios that are not God's design. Now, God's grace is greater, right? I mean, God's grace is greater than our circumstances. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians can overcome any obstacle. So I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying that there's, there's unique challenges whenever you don't have a culture that supports it. So there's a need for younger men and women to learn from older saints about how to relate to one another, how to discipline children, what I'm saying is Titus 2 is as relevant today as ever. All right, here's the fourth point. 
single Christians should actively and prayerfully, actively and prayerfully prepare now for marriage and household life in the future. So these scriptures assume that most Christians will get married and have children, and that's normative for the Christian life. And I've already said that marriage and household life and kids are devalued in our modern culture, and so a lot of Christians don't, don't even think about it. It may not even be on their radar as much. And as a result, they don't prepare for it as much. It does not factor into future decision-making for a lot of young people. Now, I, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that because this is normative, I'm not saying that it is necessarily a sin for somebody to not be married. It, being single is a life stage. I mean, all four of my kids are single because they're kids. You know, it's a life stage. It's not a sin. But I'm saying it's, a, uh, but it is, it's, 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 a, it's an expectation, biblically speaking, that eventually uh, Christian Christian uh, people will, will get married someday. And there is a stipulation of God calling a man or woman to celibacy for the purpose of uniquely difficult and challenging Christian service. So I'm acknowledging that too. But it is getting harder to find a godly spouse. And I know this because I've, I've talked to a lot, of, a lot of single people here. Um, you can't just assume that any person that calls themselves a Christian and is single is a good candidate for marriage. So there's a, there's a, there's a preparation, there's a discernment that's necessary. And our message as a church is the same as scripture, which is marriage is good. It's desirable. It's a blessing. It's a gift. And children are good and good uh, and a blessing and a gift of God. So our desire is to raise up young Christian men and women who are great candidates for marriage. We're not going to have a dating service or any kind of dating app or anything as a church. I'm just saying like, we want you to be discipled in such a way that if God brings the Mr. and Mrs. Wright into your life, then you will be prepared and equipped because we've discipled you in, in, in that way. So I, I, I want the single men and women at Christ the King Church to hear this message. Your church wants to help you do that. We, we want to uh, help you to pursue um, and desire marriage in a, in a God-honoring way, and that's good. And so we'll, we'll champion it. In a world where marriage is devalued, I want you to take heart knowing that your church will never devalue that. And if you desire it, we say that is a good and God-honoring desire. I hope you would desire it. And in fact, most Christian singles that I know and have talked to, they want to be married. And that's, that's a good thing. I want to encourage them in that. And over the years as a pastor, one thing I've seen a few times, um, I've spoken to several young women, and you have to ask a few questions to really drill down to the heart level. Um, but you ask them, like, what do you really want? Like, ideal scenario, tell me what it is that you would love to see happen in your life. And inevitably, they might sheepishly say, what I really want is I want to be married and I want to have kids. But that, that may not be their first answer. And what I notice is that there seems to be a hesitation or maybe even embarrassment to admit that. There's a sense that, well, I, I feel kind of like I'm not supposed to say this, but I'd love to be married and have children. I want, I want to be a mother and I want to raise a family. Now, why would a young woman ever feel that way? Well, I, I've never been a woman. I've never identified as one. So I can't speak to the emotions of a woman or the desires or feelings, but what I can say is the messages that I've seen encourage women to, to, to think of marriage and motherhood as um, 
more of a failure or fallback option or, you know, it's, well, you should aim higher. That's, you're aiming below your potential. Wouldn't you rather be an astronaut? Wouldn't you rather, you know, be a CEO or something? Uh, but, but wife and mother, really, is that, is that the best you can come up with? As though she were aiming below her potential. And I'm like, what, what, a, what a horrible way to think because I can think of, if I think of like the, the most glorious and beautiful and God-honoring potentiality within a woman is her ability to create image bearers of God from her own body. What could be more beautiful than that? What could be a greater or higher potential than that? So I, I would love as a cultural value for the women of this church to know like, you don't have to be ashamed of that. If that's, if that's a good desire. And we want, to, we want to encourage you in that. All right, number five. Examine your own household by faith and receive God's grace making adjustments as you need to. So in this sermon, we haven't gotten into all the what about scenarios and the list has probably grown since the last time I've mentioned it. You probably have all kinds of, well, what about this situation? Uh, what about divorced people? What about single moms? What about abusive husbands? Like, I've thought of all those and there are answers for those. And I'm not discounting the reality, the difficult reality of any of those situations. Like I said, there's a thousand things I can say and there's different venues for those. Um, I would encourage you to talk to older saints or a pastor, a, you know, the elders would be happy to talk to you, um, other trusted leaders at the church. But whatever you do, I want to encourage you to remember the grace of God as you take into account every what about scenario that comes into your mind. Because here's the thing, we need God's grace when it comes to household life. If there's one area where we desperately need to remember the grace of God, it is in these things which touch the soul at such a deep level. For a lot of us, there's, a, there's an ache in our soul about household and family subjects because of some past experience, some experience from our childhood, some estrangement from our family. It, it touches a nerve, right? I mean, it, it touches the soul in a unique way because these things are part of the uniqueness of how God created men and women. It's, it's a very deep personal thing. And so we need to remember that the grace of God, the blood of Jesus applies in every possible configuration that we can come up with. We need God's grace and we cannot neglect to remember that. The family, the household contains the potential of some of the greatest joys and the greatest pain that humans can experience. So we need grace. Some family circumstances are extraordinarily difficult and complicated. And the biggest challenge of household discipleship is that it relies on other people that are outside of our control. So you might think, man, I want my household to look the way you're describing, Pastor Michael. But my husband, my wife, my kids, my parents, whatever, my ex-husband, my ex-wife, my stepchildren. It prevents it from looking that way, and now I feel like a failure. I feel like there is some, there is some uh, golden pot of joy out there that I can never get to. Uh, that's not the way it works. God's grace is sufficient. The, the delight is in the gospel. The delight is in what Christ has done for us, that we are included and counted righteous in the household of God. The human household ultimately is a portrait of the household of God because redemption comes in the shape of a household. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover our sins. There's total forgiveness. 
And it's sufficient to cover our complicated circumstances where things are less than ideal. And so my prayer is that as we conclude today, that we don't leave feeling this unnecessary burden or feel like this weight of sin crushing us like a weight. Rather, my prayer is that we will feel the freedom and the, and the joy of the gospel, knowing that Christ's blood accounts for every sin and every what about scenario and every woulda, coulda, shoulda done it scenario in our lives. And then the Holy Spirit says, what's next? Like, where are you now? Take inventory. And what course corrections can you make? Now, there might be reasons A through G that you're totally out of your control. Jesus has got that. Don't worry about the things that are out of your control. But here at letter H, there's, there's a small step you can take. What can you do? So my prayer is that we'll each come away with one or two things we can put into practice, trusting the grace of Jesus to cover our weaknesses, our sins, our regrets, and move forward in hope. Let me tell you my own testimony real quick as we finish. These sermons are longer in this series than usual. Normally it's like 40, 45. So if you're visiting, just know that this is unusual. Um, as a father and husband, like this sermon in particular is really convicting to write. Because you, you're thinking about stuff and what runs through my mind is all the things I wish I could have done better. And wishing I could go back, man, if my kids were five again, if they were eight again, I would change this or that. But you can't. And so for me, it's trusting God with where things are. Knowing that Jesus is faithful. And he is, he's faithful. He's faithful to all of us. I am sure in some ways that I haven't worked out. There are pieces of my own childhood that I want to correct in my own household. But this is, I can't do that. I, I, that belongs to Jesus. That's not mine, that's Jesus's. And so for all of us, there are things that will touch a part of your soul that'll hurt. And I want you to hear this morning that my message to you is not a, a, a weight. It's, it's not meant to be a burden of guilt. Of you should do it my way. Fail your families. That's not it. What I want you to hear is a loving exhortation from a man who's older than most of you. <laughs> that there are things that you can do to, to, to move more with the grain. And that glorifies God. So remember the blood of Jesus. Cling to the cross. Come up here to the table today and feast with whatever your family is here with you today. And enjoy the goodness of Jesus. Well, I'm just going to stop there. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you have spoken to us and you've created the world in a way that is good and beautiful and right. Lord, I pray that you will communicate by your Spirit Press it on everybody's hearts here today, the goodness and truth and the beauty of the household, and that you will free us from any weight or burden that is not of you, and help us to trust that what you have for us is, um, help us to see how you would have us walk in obedience. And Lord, in all the ways that we can't, it's inaccessible, Lord, I pray that you will just help everybody experience the joy and freedom of the gospel. Help us to be a church that 
upholds the value of the household in a godly way. We trust you with this. We thank you. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.